0: Hello, and welcome to the Area 831 Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Gaither.
1: Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Emily Stansel. Before we get into today's episode, please take a moment to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find us at Area 831 Podcast.
0: That's where you'll be able to check out some of the behind-the-scenes content, as well as find out when our next episode will be dropping.
1: It's also where we can see your feedback about the show. Tell us what you think. Let us know if there's someone you think we should be talking to.
0: One of the things we've been doing in this series is not only interviewing people who are in Santa Cruz doing cool stuff, and we've done quite a few episodes focusing on those folks, but the, the mission was sort of to look at people who were who spent time in Santa Cruz and went on to do cool things. And today's interviewee, Gail Carriger, fits the bill. She's a UCSC graduate and uh, has a pretty interesting story.
1: Yeah, she does. She does. She's a local author and she's also an archaeologist, which is not something you hear people say very often. So we're looking forward to speaking with her and hearing about her life story.
0: We were talking during the pregame and um, it's really nice to meet you finally. And, and we've been doing this series for a while now. We've been Trying to reach out to people who were actually spent time in Santa Cruz and aren't there anymore besides natives. And you qualify, you spent some time here. You went to UCSC.
2: I did. I did for my second graduate degree. Um, yeah, I've never actually lived in Santa Cruz, though, sad to say. Um, but I did. I, I was, as I was saying in pregame, I, I grew up in a tourist uh, California uh, beach town. So mm-hmm. I have some familiarity with the, the general aura and feel, and I also would. My mother would drag me down to Santa Cruz pretty regularly, um, because we would go see Shakespeare in the at the campus back,
3: mm-hmm. back yep. then. sort of that. your
2: version of Shakespeare in the Park. Um, and yeah, yeah, we would always do a we would always do a, like a girls. It was me and a couple of my girlfriends, and then my mom, and we would always do a like a spoil ourselves Santa Cruz thing. Um, so I've been in and around Santa Cruz for most of my life, um, mostly as a visitor. Though, so.
0: And what, what, what was your graduate degree from UCS and what was the one that you came in with? What, what, what are your degrees in?
2: Uh, so my undergraduate is in archaeology and then my first graduate degree is in archaeological materials, which is an analysis degree. So it's an MS. And that mm-hmm. was from my and my speciality is in organics. And that was from um, University of Nottingham in the UK. And then about, uh, as I was thinking about whether I wanted to pursue a PhD over there or not, I realized if I wanted to teach in the U.S., I probably needed a PhD from a U.S. um, university. Makes sense. And I actually have a funny, like, discovering Santa Cruz story, discovering it again or something in my future career. So it's like swanning around a, I think it was like an alumni gathering or something after. So I I had this, like, propensity, as most archaeologists do, to, like, poodle off and pursue higher education and then come back and then go away again for like a couple of years here a couple of years there or whatever so i was in one of my returns to the bay area moments and i was talking about this and then i was like like trying to get myself psyched up to go look for a new phd program and having to leave the bay area again and the lady i was talking to at this cocktail party said well you know one of the Preeminent forensic anthropologists is at UC Santa Cruz, and I was like, mm-hmm. I did not even realize UC Santa Cruz had a advanced degree offering, <laughs> let alone an archaeology department. Now, forensic either, <laughs> yeah. I was like, what? Yeah. Um. So this is a fun little thing to learn about Santa Cruz. I don't know. I mean, it's been about. 10 years since I've been there. But when I was there at the department and hanging out regularly, cause I've ret- returned as adjunct faculty quite a bit as you end up doing when you become like mm-hmm. the expert in some obscure thing in an area, um, you know, like job
0: security, it's exactly. going to be wanted. It's going to be wanted. Yeah. My focus
2: is ceramics. And so you have to like take ceramics to graduate. If you're, if you're getting a de- degree in archeology, span like advanced ceramics is like something you have to have. Cause almost every excavation has them. Hmm. So anyway, um, but the forensics arc department is also the forensics department for the, um, Santa Cruz police department. So our lab, part of our lab, so we would, we have a, a group of labs at social sciences one. And one of those labs is the forensic art lab. And it would shut down as a crime scene if they had an actual murder case or body that they were doing the work on, because many of the skills, especially with bone analysis and stuff like that, that forensic. Um, departments use in police departments come from archaeologists originally, like they use we use all the same equipment and stuff like that when we're looking at bodies, at least much of the same equipment and so there's no older forensics. bodies of course yeah, yeah a little yeah, yeah, yeah. dusty much older Dinosaurs. much older clarify that yeah. yeah. for our listeners <laughs> um, but last i checked that was still the case so um interesting the santa cruz area doesn't have so if you get a, a like a, a drowning victim or something that you need to take a look at it goes to the archaeology department at uc santa cruz uh, wow that's
1: interesting <laughs>
0: that's yep. a fun fact
1: uh-huh. a dark fact but
0: it's a it's an interesting fact <laughs>
2: well I mean I'm, I'm an archaeologist obviously I'm like very enmeshed in death and all that sort of things so it doesn't sure. seem very dark to me it seems like my old <laughs> and, job <laughs> and then
0: then backing up you see you grew up in Bolinas correct you, I did in, yeah, yeah. So
3: where yeah. is where is that I I, <laughs> I, I mean I, I know I know it's near San Francisco north of San Francisco but I've never heard of it heard of it you've
1: probably driven through it and just I was like but you've never yeah. driven up one you've never driven so up the coast
3: i the furthest up i one oysters I've been yeah. is tamales bay that's the furthest so right then
1: there. you passed it to get you, there. Yeah, oh, you, you go right and, past, and
3: you pass okay. belinas yeah yeah <laughs> okay. you did
2: um yeah, so, so belinas it's a little peninsula that's just after stinson beach so you go you're doing one you go Muir Woods, stinson beach belinas but there's no sign or anything for it so you go right past it if you're on Blink your way you to get oysters it. yeah
1: did, did living there, is that what got you into archaeology? Because it's, I mean, it's so close to the city, but it's also remote in its own way. I mean, like, you know, like you said, it's a commune, it's, it's yeah. small, it's crazy town to go not in. It's like desolate by I'll any bet. means, but it's, <laughs> you know, it's out there.
2: I think I've always been really uh, very fascinated by history and like ancient cultures in particular and a, a sort of like the idea for me that you could like physically touch the past was super exciting and that's primarily what like led me into archaeology and it was just very I've never heard it described
0: like that that makes a lot of sense
2: yeah yeah like literally i mean i have um you know non provenance teaching tools that have like the thumbprints that the ceramics that have like the thumbprints of the potter from you know medieval japan or whatever And like on the backside of a handle or something and I'm like and I can stick my hand in and put my thumb where that thumb was I mean that's just really really cool to me does it feel Um, like time
0: travel in a way when you're like that close to something that happened out and you get the tactile you know feeling from that person that long ago yeah
2: yeah and that sort of puzzling out what it means about the maker and about the people all of these little hints that an object can give you I'm a very object-driven person as well I mean I entered sci-fi fantasy via steampunk, which is very much about the trappings of the objects and things that people that universe. Mm. Um, and I like, I'm very into fashion. I really like what, like you, the d- objects you display on your person or around you kind of say about you as a how person. How they reflect what
0: your person, yeah, exactly. And yeah. how you
2: can ma- manipulate people's expectations <laughs> through them. Um, I don't think
1: I ever would have related ceramics to archeology, span but it, it actually makes a lot of sense
2: that's yeah that's really cool yeah and I was also a ceramic artist so I actually kind of fell into the specialist becoming a ceramic specialist kind of accidental excavation I cut my hand open really badly so I couldn't be a shovel jockey I couldn't be in the field so they stuck me in the lab uh, sorting through the ceramics and I know pottery very very well it's I consider it my art form and so um, I was really good at sorting. Mm-hmm. Like I could, I know. I, I no one had to explain to me what the difference between hand building and a wheel thrown object was. Mm-hmm. And I happened to be on a site that had a really like vast, <clears throat> different like levels and styles and sophistications of pottery. And I was just really good at iding them. And I also it turns out I really liked the lab a lot better than the field because <laughs> <That's laughs> the field gets to excavate all the all the stuff, and then we only have to really look at and process and catalog the coolest bits yeah so right. i was like oh it's you're like not shifting through
0: dirt you're like this right. is a really cool piece take it to go yeah. yeah
2: yeah i get to clean it you know clean it sketch it photograph it all
1: that sort of stuff Well, so that's ironic because i just sliced in finger yesterday on a piece of ceramic. <laughs> 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 it cut pretty deep too ouch no. faulty ceramics we'll call it that we'll call exactly. it that exactly yeah.
2: so you
0: could you, you could at a glance look at a piece of ceramic and tell how it was created you had that yeah. ability, yeah.
2: Yeah, in this particular situation, it's not always easy. I mean, I can mm-hmm. tell you the basics pretty much. If you hand me a shard, I'm pretty good at I can ID most of things about it in terms of like basic categorization or whatever. Like which technology was would have been needed to produce it, what level of heat in the kiln, those sort of things. Yeah. So the level of
1: technology needed to produce it would then enable you to know probably what part of the world and what time period then?
2: Usually what time period within the scope of the location. So um, I, it'd be much harder if you like set a bunch of ceramics in front of me and asked me to ID where those different places were, unless they were very iconic of the uh, place and time, I would probably have a difficult time. And that's because most um, ceramic technologies go through the same pattern of Evolution or progression of technological innovation. We're very used to thinking about Iron Age, Bronze Age, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, which is a metallic evolution. Essentially, like most civilizations, adopt different levels of metals and a capacity to process metals at on a prescribed timeline, Um, or not. Let like specifically, but you go from one to the next to the next. You go from copper to 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 iron to steel. You know, yada yada yada. Not my area of expertise, I should say, uh, ceramics is the same. So pretty much everybody, when they develop ceramics, they develop um, uh, what we would call open firing ceramics. So this is basically pottery that is made as in uh, what essentially is like a bonfire or a open firing. It's kind of um, crazy. <laughs> yeah, you've mm. seen it. it. It's many I've parts of the it, world yeah. still produce ceramics this way. Yeah, um, and yeah. Yeah. And then you develop something called an updraft kiln technology and then a downdraft kiln technology and something called cross-draft kiln. Mm -hmm. And like very few places in the world get all the way up to cross-draft level of sophistication. That tends to be places like China and Japan. Um, But, you know... uh, updraft downdraft, you know, that will go to parts of Europe and places like um, one of the places I worked, which is Syria. Yeah, it's a most people most people know about archaeology is that we're area specialists, so you'll get an Andeanist, right? who's an expert in ink and stuff from the highlands of Peru or something like that. Um, but there's a bunch of us hanging around who are what called who are what's called materials experts. Um, and we tend to have a very focused expertise in a specific thing. in my case, transition technologies for ceramics and uh, specifically open firings to closed or um, that is to kill. and <laughs> yes very specific but actually like it's pretty general there's a lot of parts of the world that go through that transition and so you would call somebody like me specifically in if you were on an excavation and you think you have a thing that I can help you with so you find what you and you to know is that a lime kiln is it a brick kiln for construction it is a tile kiln for roofs or is it a pottery kiln if so what kind of pottery very basically like how big would it be Me in for like not the whole scope of the excavation just okay. for maybe a couple of weeks or something like that. And this happens quite a lot. There's sort of experts coming around from but it but in a material of a certain place, like Roman marbles, for example, you might encounter a column and then call in the local expert on that. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Interesting people.
2: It's really fun. And you get to go to all different in my case wow. I get to go all over the world. So I got to go to lots of different places. Um, I did work on specific sites for a long period, kind of as a catalog or A lot high volume of ceramic excavation, or where um, long occupation sites where you get different technologies introduced, and so they need somebody kind of on the constantly, mostly to <laughs> argue with the field <laughs> arcs about what they think they've dug up, which is what I did at one of my oh. last excavations, which was in Peru.
0: And and to recap, because I didn't realize this, so other specific types of kilns for, like you said, for, for building brick, for, for structures and, and yeah. ceramics. for Yeah, and lime. Yeah.
2: Uh, lime kilns for um, uh, whitewashing. And yeah, there's a lot of different kinds of kilns for interior. But also if you're in mass production, so if you're, you're making a lot of ceramics for export or um, trade, then you can get very big kilns that are for ceramics that are almost can get up to the same size mm-hmm. as sort of brick kilns would and are based on a similar technological style often. And therefore, you know, they look really similar in the archaeological record where you don't have the top portion of the kiln anymore. I
1: think, sorry, we're just, we're, we're like getting so deep into the ceramics because it is really interesting. Um. So where, where I saw it happening was in Morocco and they had what, I mean, it was just, you know, looked like you said, a bonfire, just huge plume of black smoke and just, a hole that they were throwing everything into. And I, I, I know you mentioned, um, you said like downdraft and updraft and all the different versions of how they do it. So I'm not sure exactly what it was, but it was looked like everything was on fire. Basically there was so much, it. it was really, really interesting. I just had no idea that that was, you know, how people do it, that it's not just like the kilns that we have here up the street. I actually have like a ceramics membership and, you know, it's just like the, little oven that you go and bake your thing in it's it was so crazy and so (laughs) cool to see that happening
2: yeah and and very I mean I I could talk about this This he's one of my great loves of my life Uh, I could talk about this forever but very interesting to think in terms of like when something is that like a big thing on fire you have to consider where it is going to be situated in relation to the rest of a village or the rest of a city or what have you I mean one of the things I like to throw out because people don't know this about, for example, Rome, which we feel like we know a lot about. But what one of the things we know about a lot of the larger Roman cities is that people don't have kitchens as we think of them. So these are vast cities full of large populations, but like you don't, you don't have a kitchen where you light stuff on fire. That's like they just don't. That that seems like a silly idea, um, which I agree with. That seems like a really silly idea. Uh, not a lot of open flames in a big area with. Uh, construction and people (laughs) everywhere no um but what so what they had was a was a robust street food um but more interestingly to me as a ceramicist is they had these ovens for bread making which are very similar in construction to kilns um, in the long haul when just in basics and um but they were like a communal thing so you could for example drop off a stew pot Mm -hmm. on your way to work uh and they would pop that in a specific area of this massive bread oven um, and then on your way back from work you would pick up your pot again and you would pick up maybe a quarter of a loaf of bread or a whole loaf of bread they had these these standardized bread loaves and um and move along and that like the whole kind of local neighborhood would sort of revolve around that was
0: part of their culture
2: area. and it people didn't yeah it was the people's food. food i mean that's
1: that's the crazy thing to me
2: well there was someone sort of manning oh, the see. window okay. I mean legitimately like it like if you go to a place like Pompeii or better Herculaneum and see how the um, the bars are set up or whatever you're like oh this looks or the or the latrines which were you know communal but still it basically looks like a bunch of um right it's <laughs> <Right. potties. laughs> like like it's it's very it's oddly very similar to the modern world um So yeah, no, there's like a window and you presumably would drop your stew pot off. It was in your pot and you would get a chip or something like that. A little marker, probably a clay marker of some kind, like a token. And then when you went back and give them your token, they give you your pot. I like like the idea of it. It sounds good to me. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it made me, and this sort of, not to shoehorn it in, but this brings me around. So when I was thinking about writing science fiction in particular... And thinking about space stations and how like humans would colonize space, I came to the, exactly the same conclusion, which is that like you, if space is extremely limited, then you don't have kitchens, right? You just don't give people the option. Like you you deal with food in a different way. You don't have people cooking their own food that like it's just there's no point. Like And so therefore, as far as I'm concerned, you have hawker centers um, because I love them. And spent too much time in Singapore, and uh, that cater to like and and uh, and similarly, you might have something mm. like a bread oven place where people could drop off their own. Food. So like the, this idea that um, this ancient way of dealing with packed in humanity in small areas and the room allotments and space space occupation also applies to space stations in the far future. Um, and I just really like, that's kind of how my brain works. I think a lot about like all the different cultures of the past and then how little bits of that might work in, um, I love how the more more things change, the
0: more they uh, stay uh, the same way, that same motif that you learn doing archeology span fast forward, (laughs) a (laughs) hundred thousand years or whatever applies to science as well. (laughs) Yeah. It's it's people, it's people figuring out how to get along.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And the same thing applies as I mean, in the United States, at least, archaeology is a subdivision of anthropology, which means I have a lot of cultural anth in my background. Um, and so like culture conflict and building alien races, linguistics, the way language informs the human brain, like all of that sort of thing is also very, very interesting to me. So when I write science fiction, I like to say it's it's kind of social science fiction because mm-hmm. that's the part of human evolution and the future and alien contact that really interests me the most. One of my favorite things, with sci-fi at least, is when somebody says that my aliens feel really, really alien to them and yet also familiar. And I'm like, yeah, isn't, I did isn't my job good science as, fiction, as an though? author. Isn't,
0: right. But
2: to me, yeah. yeah. Um, but it does mean I'm less interested in exploring um, what would be called hard sci-fi aspect, notions like FTL or advanced. What's um, FTL? I... You know, physics, part of it. Uh... Faster than light travel, hyperspace, hyperspace, hyperspace. (laughs) How actual humans move between the stars—that that's like less interesting to me than the social dynamics, the social
0: dynamics, and the culture involved with. I will
2: admit, I don't know much about sci-fi and how we would evolve. I'll I'll probably be the
1: one asking. I'm like, what is that (laughs) abbreviation? (laughs) That's okay. That's okay. Sorry.
3: So Emily, Um, we're adding this to Emily's list of things to educate her on. There's heavy metal and rock.
1: Yeah, <laughs> and now they're sci-fi. Yeah, I didn't admit it exactly. on our first podcast, but I didn't know. um Or maybe it was our second podcast. I didn't know any of them. No, music. it was the first
0: one. We we were talking to we were talking to James Durbin, and we got on this we down this rabbit hole of, of his influence from Ronnie James yeah. Dio, and we and he and I got really excited, and then later we realized that you know I'm
1: sitting so. here just quiet
2: because I have no idea who that person. Was.
0: <laughs> always speak up. Always speak up. Yeah. Um. So.
2: You must have a, you must have a, like a dorkdom or a geekdom or an obsession with something though, Emily, I think everybody does. What's um, your thing? Well, what, I, what's the thing that architecture, you're passionate so about?
1: I actually, that's why I'm more interested in these things you are talking about archaeology. And I'm starting to think, maybe I need to go back to school for this because I also really like looking, I, I love history too. And I love just looking at patterns across time with people. And I love linguistics. Mm. I love language. So it sounds really interesting to me. So I, I kind of, you know, with architecture and interior design, it's kind of, you know, speaking the yeah. same language, I guess I should say.
2: <laughs> I got to tell you, I know this is like throwing it out there and not everybody has this opportunity. But if you ever have a chance to go to Singapore, as somebody who likes architecture, I think of it as the art form that that entire city, state, country wow. collects. Um, literally, it's what they do do so they basically just have the one major city which is also the right. country which is also the <laughs> island which right. is all Singapore right and um they just invite amazing architects to come in and build the most amazing buildings and when I was there the experience of just walking around that city and like you turn a corner and there's some other like crazy 12 story forested like wow. organic like thing where they involved the hanging gardens of babylon and a skyscraper and you're just like singapore what are you doing it's okay. so cool i'll add it to my um, list. so i highly recommend it as putting it on your bucket list because the architecture it's also one of the
3: most like culturally diverse city state countries there yeah. are right i mean you have yeah m- like a muslim population you have like christian population yeah. Buddhist. you have everybody
2: All in it. this small
3: yeah. like relatively speaking small area and it's a very yeah. from what i've never been but i've here it's like everyone's nice and it's peaceful and Sounds great beautiful and yes everything. it is a
2: totalitarian regime so like behave right no gum no <laughs> gum behave but uh but that that bit was the bit i mean i love architecture obviously i'm an archaeologist i love the way things look the you know what people wear the fashion's great there the the food the uh, food okay i'm no, sold. the food is the food is i can't I'm like <laughs> the food is so good because as you say it is All of these different cultures and just oh (laughs) my god I've never like I just I I would live in Singapore just because of the food scene there it's it's like I keep coming back and living in California because of the food scene like that's I can't get away um because the food is so good here but wow it sounds fantastic I'm sold for sure (laughs) the food
0: speaking of food this is go go ahead Joe
3: no please you go Michael
0: it's a tangent but because we were talking about Santa Cruz earlier and you did you live in Santa Cruz or just kind of commuted back and forth and went to school here?
2: I commuted back and forth. Yeah. Um. So I, but I mean, but I.
0: You spent time like, here. All of
2: my friends were there. Right. Or whatever, so I was hanging out there a lot and spending the night there. You know, one of my best friends um, was at university there as well. So when I was going to, when I was home from university, I would go visit her, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, I commuted. Uh. <laughs> I commuted 17. On a motorcycle. On a motorcycle. Whoa. Was, oh, wow. No. Every day. That is That is badass. badass.
3: <laughs>
2: yeah. I, fortunately against the commute, right? Yeah. And not on weekends. I right. so wasn't with the tourist traffic or anything. But um yeah. Yeah, that was my that was my life. was a lot of seventeen. My first
0: song was about commuting highway 17. I'll send you the video. Um talking about <laughs> Californian food. Um any food memories of Santa Cruz since we come we we talk, like try to focus a little bit on Santa Cruz in this.
2: Yes, of course. Um, So I can, t- uh, like, you want to talk about memories of Santa Cruz, I have so many memories of Santa Cruz, because, you know, like, I have these sort of iconic moments. It's your episode, there, let's hear it. But... <laughs> <laughs> so uh, one of my, like, prevailing memories of Santa Cruz was the earthquake, or the post-earthquake in particular, and the tents in downtown. Because I've always, from a child on up, had a love affair with Santa Cruz's little downtown Shopping area, like, because you had the most amazing used bookstores. And then there was the hat shop. And then there was like always great food and better, great coffee, right? Especially as a teenager, like, as soon as I got mobile and 16 and got my license and was driving everywhere, I was the first, I'm the oldest in my group of friends. So I was always the driver. And so, like, we were driving down to Santa Cruz as teenagers all the time, go to boardwalk. But really, it was the downtown area. And I remember those tents. Like those yeah. white mm-hmm. tents and the markets inside the tents and all of the stores that i had visited for years being these little markets talk stalls. about
0: feeling communal and people making things work and for our younger yeah. listeners the earthquake was like october 17th 1989 yep. a couple of decades ago yeah.
2: yeah and it was just and it but it was for years after that like it took a long time to rebuild that downtown area um yeah. and I and developed some weird same. affection it's never been the same. No, no,
3: no.
2: Um, but, but I did develop a weird affection for those, that frickin' tent environment or whatever. So, yeah, a lot of my memories are like Pargalesi's and, and the roastery, like coffee memories, because it's that iconic California teenage year. Santa Cruz coffee roaster. Yep, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You hang out at coffee places. Breakfasts. I have like breakfast memories of different places. And then, like, I, I, you know, I can see the, um, Oh my god i think santa cruz is like one of the first places i had like a crab benedict Ooh, or something uh-huh. you know um the idea of incorporating like seafood into breakfast items in as in a cali- quintessentially california way i'm thinking of the zachary's
0: cook. and now now i'm getting really hungry yeah, you know? yeah, or, yeah walnut. or walnut street yes. yeah a Walnut street cafe of course yes. yeah
2: yeah yeah um and then of walnut course cafe, like the like. So I'm not a big fan of Great America. So the boardwalk was like the place I went for roller coasters and that kind of scene as well. And for a while there was, do you remember Pepsi night? At, I, I, think was I worked night. at
3: the boardwalk during that era. I was in high school. So I, they had the Pepsi challenge. Yeah. I, yeah, that, yeah, yes. yeah. Like, uh,
2: yeah, so you could for anybody who doesn't know. From what I remember, you could go with like a can of empty Pepsi or something, and like get a big discount yep. on the, the all rides. Yeah. Band? They should still
1: do that, or do they um, still? Uh, I, don't I don't think know. not
3: since COVID. I don't think so. They used to. They, mm. Then they had like their 1907 nights. That was like the big thing. You go. It's like. After seven o'clock, you got a dollar hot dog, a dollar cotton candy.
2: Yes, and when they
0: first started, that rides were like twenty-five cents for like. then they they kept upping it upping it up it up. But it's still.
2: So it was like a really cheap thing to do. Like, and if you didn't mind parking a little ways way off the strip, then you could just walk you know, you walk a a half a mile to get to the boardwalk. You didn't have to pay. And not pay $27 for parking
0: and 25 cents for
2: a Exactly. So you were like a a cheap, cheap college (laughs) kid. Like you could get away with like the gas to get there and then 11 bucks for your whole evening. I remember it distinctly. And we would do. And 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 all of the like sorry everybody um but I'm talking to Santa Cruzian locals right like all of the tourists and the kids and the families yeah. would be gone by seven o'clock yeah. um and so that it was, was like the beauty of it it was it was kind it, of a it was yeah. kind of
0: a local-ish thing in the summertime it had that it had that yeah. air to it
2: exactly yeah. and it became there were like and you could like get the Big Dipper to yourself I remember once my friend and I just like did the Big Dipper like 30 <laughs> times in a row 'Cause there was no line. It was like the end of the evening, it was getting on towards nine o'clock or whatever, and we were just like boop dipper, dipper 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 so much fun. Good memories. You know, like just stuff yeah. like that. So back to food memories. That was my first candy apple was at um the boardwalk. Um, that's a big one. So it was the first time I'd ever had one there was a candy shop there was this taffy saltwater taffy oh yeah first time i ever had saltwater taffy was that the santa and the cruz big
0: machine one? we'd walk by you love i gotta buy some because look could... at the machine it looks wonderful
2: it's so much fun to watch you just stand there staring at great it. great advertising and, doing and, and, and everything right? smells so. good yeah 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 it was so yeah I've i have lots of memories of food in santa cruz i'm sure there are some others i'm missing i mean Last time when I went just like to stay and hang out and have a little bit of a writing retreat was these. So the, do you guys know the Adobe on green? Used to be your so. unquestionably the best like Airbnb bef- before Airbnb. So it was like a, I guess it was just a BnB and b but it was like a this old. They also have. The and house. where is it? It's it's. Guys know the Heind- Emily, do you know Heind. the Hind House? Oh, so Hyde House is one of your oldest still functioning, like, residences. So it's like an old, old, old oh, Victorian in oh, downtown. downtown. And when I stayed there, it was, like, but it it has, it mostly lets on long term. So it's not like a, so, like, a visiting professors would stay there and stuff like that. But, like, everything in the house is decorated and pretty authentic to, like, nine. I would say 1870s through 90s. Wow. So late okay. Victorian. Um, and the house is as well. It's a historic So building, it's kind of in your wheelhouse you in of things
0: it. that you get attracted to. Oh my God, so yeah. cool.
2: I think yeah, 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 I only, absolutely. I only ever really noticed
1: the Victorians that are up on Beach Hill, you know, near the boardwalk. There's some pretty mm-hmm. spectacular, mm-hmm. really immaculate ones up there. I would love yes, to see inside. Yeah, painted ladies. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, well, you, I mean, you can... I, I N D E okay. I think you can look it up. It's in and the Adobe it's Adobe Green. It looks like Adobe
1: awesome.
2: on the yeah. green is Adobe closed. so Adobe Adobe on Green is an older it's a mission okay. level and that one was an actual gotcha. BNB. Hind is really hard to stay in but um Adobe you could you used to be able to just book it like it was a BNB um, but it's beautiful like old mission style structure just a gorgeous um, place to stay obviously you guys are local so you don't have (laughs) to find cool places to stay but the last time I was there I was staying there and I remember walking into the downtown area there used to be great oh we'll have another conversation about that but um and there's uh there was this great, I think it was Hawaiian-themed or Hawaiian restaurant, relatively oh, no. big at the back end near where the Goodwill used to be. Oh, and... yeah, yeah.
3: That's kind of on Union Street. That's like behind Pacific. Yes, on yeah, Union yeah, Street. Yeah, yeah. you yes, talking about okay. Hulu's? No, no, not, not Hulu's. It was, um shoot. Was I, I know the place you're talking about. Six or seven it. years ago. Oh, Pono. Yeah, it, was Pono. Oh. it used to be but Pono, so good. yeah, by the Goodwill. Yeah,
1: yeah. That's oh, still cool. there. It went away for a while oh, and so then it good. came back again. And then they opened up. They actually opened yes. up a second location now in Capitola. Capitola,
0: and, and oh, I think Timmy owns both wonderful. of them. I think, yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, Capitola used to have, bloomberries, Tea Room, Blackberries. You had a wonderful mm-hmm. tea room there as well, um, which I would like pilgrimage to go to because it's just the most delicious teas, um, like high British style high tea kind of thing, oh, fun. but like with yummy. Uh, sort of Santa Cruzian California light influenced cuisine, you know. So, like, you can get a little soup in a sandwich, but it was like asparagus. Yeah. Sure. I wanted to
0: ask you because your your bio says you love tea. So I was drinking tea in your. Honor <laughs> I was going
2: to say, yeah. Talk to us Aww. about the tea. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, that place was wonderful. I was actually thinking, like, the real winner for me in Santa Cruz is, as as a teenager, and and probably still to this day, is the freaking vintage and shopping, thrifting shopping scene like that
0: still very active yeah Yeah.
2: that is my jam oh my god like i love that more like yeah you can't see me people watching but i'm almost always wearing vintage clothing or vintage influenced clothing um well it kind of runs the thread
0: runs for like your your education your your work with archaeology and then jumping Mm. to um how how did how did you go from from that to teaching and then to this genre writing that you're doing how did you jump into that
2: (laughs) Well, I grew up in Bolinas, uh, so I always wrote, but I always thought you don't make money as a writer because Bolinas is po- full of like incredibly poor poets, and I thought that's a terrible life decision <laughs> is to become a right. writer. Like you, nobody met you you know you're stuck living on quesadillas for the rest of your um, life. Um, not that there's a problem I was going to say that. nothing wrong with quesadillas. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that was like you touched on a touchstone of like uh, weird foods of my youth. Um, anyway. Uh, yes um so i uh so i was like i'm not gonna write but i love writing it's just it's something i mm-hmm. do i really really enjoy it it's a, a way to you know let my imagination explore you know the the places of history that didn't happen or what might have been or what could be that's a right? great
0: quote yeah <laughs> I
2: like that. so um so i always wrote and i was and i always wrote fiction and uh yeah so i was uh almost two quarters three quarters of the way through my PhD at UC Santa Cruz and I had written this funny little book called Zolus, on a dare and um while I was I think I was, I started it while I was not so I started it my previous degree and I was just plugging away at it and then I wrote it and I was like well I wrote it I might as well see if I can get it published like why the hell not and off it went into the ether and uh people wanted wow. to publish it
3: and they wanted and more and so at the time right yeah yeah,
2: yeah. Yeah, well, well, at the time I was like, okay, you know, like nobody makes money off writing. So, you know, let's I got myself an agent. I got myself a book contract. I continued to work on my PhD and teach and do all the things I was doing normally. Uh, and then my second book. So the first book was kind of a slow burn. People kind of found it by word of mouth. It was very weird and unique. Um, Solace is uh, you know, it's steampunk, but it's also a bit of paranormal romance a bit of urban fantasy a bit of it's very funny i write highly comedic stuff very light very sort of found family i always describe my stuff as like book hugs like you leave my books with a smile like on your it. face that's what i gotta jump into i'm meant.
0: about i'm about halfway through solace so not too many spoilers but i gotta say i'm reading <laughs> solace and i love it and i mean page one you had me at vampires I i'm missing. like i love i love the t- i love the language the tone of it and then i got about three paragraphs down and the attack, and then it opened up a whole other. Yeah, I I love it. I love I love the, I love the tone of it and where it's going. And I, you know, oh, yeah, I already read very, all four of them, for all
3: yeah, four of them
1: just... in the series, so I already know. I already know all the spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> there, I mean, it
2: it. it doesn't if you tell really, me to spoil, I'll still read them.
0: So go ahead, go ahead.
2: It doesn't really matter that much, though. Like like you're in safe hands with me. Everything's gonna be all right. Like the spoilers are whatever. Yeah. You know, it's just fun. It's just good fun. Um. And so, and that's kind of why I wrote the first book because I was seeing a lot of like really angsty paranormal or urban fantasy. I was seeing a lot of like alt history, but none none of it seemed to be fun. And I was like, I just want, Mm -hmm. I just wanted something cheerful. I'm going to, I'm going to go
3: and make a kind of a, I don't know how you're going to feel about this, but Mm -hmm. I almost feel like you're, and I mean this as a compliment, the anti Anne Rice right like you're the opposite <laughs> like Anne rise like very like romantic and moody and brooding and you know dark like you said and solace is kind of like the light-hearted well, cheer like you said the cheerful funny quirky cheerful side, side yeah. of that same kind of like it, oh it's very doing- it's very
0: non-twilighty i would say too
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah
2: well i was i was used to joke that like well we uh, my group of friends in high school actually the Santa Cruz contingent d friend group um we used to joke that there was the pink of goth which is when you go all the way through your goth phase and emerge out the other side into like cyberpunk and pink and like <laughs> and, and bright colors uh but yes i i do think of myself as sort of an antidote uh, i always wanted to be goth but um cuz the clothing is so cool but i'm just too <laughs> cheerful for it so it never worked out <laughs> I like well
0: that. the pink hat definitely pink works
2: so. yeah. yes i like i like i like pink yeah. things and cheerful things and talk talking um, about genre too um mm.
0: can you define steampunk i mean i know it from the halloween aesthetic oh, sure. and i like it when i yeah. see it i i watched i like the, the nevers was on hbo before they pulled it mm-hmm. i love that genre can you define it for our listeners
2: Technically speaking, steampunk is something called retrofuturism, which is where you like go to the past and then imagine different technologies happened or didn't happen. So, um, in my case, the idea that like uh, dirigible technology kind of took over, that like wireless tech didn't develop, that that sort mm-hmm. of thing. So everybody's still dependent on like clockwork mechanisms, very and mechanical that sort of stuff. Yeah. Very, it's very mechanical. Uh, An aesthetic way to look at it is like the way we've gotten with our technology now is everything is in small and increasingly smaller silver boxes, little boxes of technology where we don't really Mm -hmm. know what's going on. And Steambook is kind of the opposite of that, where you take the sort of mechanical clankings and the idea of functionality and kind of glorify it and, you know, paint it gold and bronze. Big moving parts. Big moving parts. Yeah, big moving parts and stuff. stuff stuff. Big trunks Um, and tall hats. yeah. stripes yeah and so it has a very strong aesthetic movement that goes with it much as horror and goth are kind of coupled together um which is not normal for um, genres I have to say um and has given me a sort of unique experience in writing it but also very much marries to being a, an archaeologist again with the objects and the whimsy and it, it certainly plays well with my my style as a writer it's fun
3: too um, it's a funness story. Like, how, how
2: do the yeah.
3: octopus play into steampunk because <laughs> in a lot of i follow um an artist who works for Disney uh, Brian Kessinger I forget it Brian yes what's that i know okay. him well. um and he does he'll post on instagram these commissioned works and it's like oh steampunk little mermaid or what you know like these kind of like he yes. crosses genres and whenever yes. there's a steampunk component there is auto the octopus like
2: well, that's his, that's his brand, okay. Otto. Um, that's how he came up in the world was he had uh, Victoria, I think her name is Victorian on Auto. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. he had these two characters and he did children's books and coloring books and then everything at, starting way back in the early 2000s. The octopus in general and the sort of sea is a Jules Vernean thing. And also a, to a certain extent, kind of a Lovecraftian, but there's a Kraken component going on. So there's a lot of steampunk that, um, draws off of the idea of deep sea exploration sort of if you think about the Victorian adventurers of HG Wells mm-hmm. or what have you this idea of um, the future is the Victorians imagined it, it could be so it was sort of limited by their technology and experience of the time. Um, and so you get to, uh, and that uh, kind of octopuses and, and squids and the motifs attached to those two c- comes along that with That makes it, sense. I yeah. I, when
0: I was a kid, think. I mean, still, still H.T.O.S. has always been one of my favorite authors, probably for that same reason. Uh, that, that technology thrust into the future from their point of view, way back when.
2: Yeah, it's really interesting to think about. And it's fun to write. Oh, I bet. Um, so there's a lot of debate within the genre over whether you would classify Wells and uh Company Byrne, et cetera, as steampunk authors, or if they're the sci-fi of their time, at the time maybe? writing yeah. this, they're just sci-fi at the time. Uh, yeah. Um, and, and then there's sort of two waves of steampunk that come after that. There's the first iteration, which is actually kind of birthed out of the cyberpunk movement, in terms of the themes it explores and the narrative it uses, which did not have a companion aesthetic movement developing alongside it. And so that's um, what Jeter, that's the the term steampunk comes from is Jeter and and Diamond and people of that, the first wave of steampunk authors. Um, And so they're a little bit more on the punk side of the literary thing, which means they're interested in um, subversive activities, uh, political machinations, you know uh exploring um alternate social structures you know as a as an allegory for um uh, our own current political situation whereas second wave steampunk, punk like me we tend to have written in companion with the movement and so you get a lot more like whimsy and silliness and um absurdity explored also sort of gently lampooning things sure. i think science fiction always gently lampoons our current uh, situation mm-hmm. but um yeah so so i i wrote i wrote solace and uh, it was it did fine and i was happily still an archaeologist and then uh, changeless hit the new york times and then like that everything sort of shifted and suddenly i was having to make decisions like one career over another and all that sort of a thing
0: this was like one more time yeah. you found a little niche and they wanted more so you found <laughs> a new thing to do this, is, this has that, happened several please. times over your several careers, it sounds like.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I have a lot of kind of personal mottos and things like that. Um, but, you know, one of them is I, I like to do what I'm good at.
0: <laughs> Always good <laughs> advice also, for anybody. Um, yeah, yeah,
2: Yes, Like find the thing you're good at and do it. Uh, right. Try to make money off of it. Try to make your living off of it. Uh, but also I like to kind of, I would say, move in the direction of greatest courage, which is a quote from an old podcaster I used to listen to, actually. Um, which is just like, if it feels like it's a little bit more challenging than my other option, I'm probably going to go towards the like pivot of n- newness and challenge. It's a good, it's a good way to A little to bit out of your so comfort
0: that, zone. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. Was, yeah, I was just that?
2: said it's a good way to grow. Take
1: the more challenging approach, you know, <laughs> just leads to more self-discovery. Yeah.
2: I also like to like do the thing, especially at this point in my career, I, you know, um, I think Part of the reasons my books initially had success is my publishing house didn't quite know what to do with them. They steampunk was new to them. They were very confused by me, by the they're like, We we bought this thing, but we're not quite sure where it should go on a shelf. Like they're just they were and so basically I was like, Well just try it. <laughs> they would be like, There's this new Amazon gold box deal thing. Would, would you like us to put your book in that? And I'd be like, Yes, <laughs> put my book in that. Like do the thing. Mm-hmm. Like Sure. Charge 99 cents right. for it. Like, just try it. Like, you know, I have a whole other life. Like I'm busily teaching the, the young minds of UC Santa Cruz. Like,
0: well, talking talk to your agent. Like, like, yeah, there is this thing that you can do. You go do your thing, put it on Amazon, you know, find. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Be, be experimental. Um, And that actually served me in very good stead. And it sort of continued. You probably built a big audience doing
0: it that way too. You got it out there and you had more to come.
2: Kind of accidentally. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the the book's path to success was incredibly serendipitous at kind of every level, not the least of which is at the time there were still lots of bookstores borders was still around. And um, so lots of foot traffic into bookstores and this weird little mass market paperback turned up. It, It, released in mass market it didn't release in hardback i begged for that i was like please make my cheap my book cheap just get it out there (laughs) um please i just want people to read it um and you had a career going on uh, so you weren't depending on this
0: exclusively
2: yeah i wasn't dependent on it like i said i was like the one thing i never wanted to be was a writer (laughs) so So you keep funny things you're
0: good at gail unfortunately
2: (laughs) i know tragic Uh, anyway uh so so this funny little book came out and people didn't know what to do with it they like didn't know where to shelve it like it has a pink cover but it has a girl with a weird umbrella it it also has like octopus motifs it's very strange what do we do with this um and so it got put in like romance and then it got put in sci-fi and then it got put in ya and then it got nominated for a ya award or tangential to ya award and then like people would people read it because it was so strange and so unusual for them and then they were like well this is great and they just have a stack of it next to the till and like we're hand selling this this funny book to people um and 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 partly because they didn't know where to put it in the bookstores now that's like one of the worst marketing things in the universe to to have a product where people don't know how to put it on a shelf but in my case it works and it It sounds like they were trying
1: it out in a few different areas of the bookstore too so it's bigger reach
2: (laughs) yeah so I got fans from all over so I have romance reader fans I have sci-fi fantasy fans and I have YA fans wow
0: Wow. has there been I'm sure there's been talks has has, has there been discussions about turning some of these into into tv shows or most i mean sure because yeah. like just, as far as i've gotten the book this just like seems so obvious the character is great <laughs> the dialogue is great so the the, the, yeah. the visuals are great i mean it just seems like it's yeah, just I like do. a slam dunk but i'm sure it's not but yeah
2: well it's been under option uh yeah. so the book has been under option. i'm trying to think there was a brief like maybe a, a year or year and a half where it wasn't but pretty much uh the parasol at the first series at least mm-hmm. And sometimes most of the universe just goes in and out under option, depending on I'll that bet. kind of contract that I've signed. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> yeah, which is like, I have actually I have a blog post. You can Google Gail Carragher, an option does not a movie make, which <laughs> explains... <laughs> as clearly as i can for layman specifically my reader base right, like
0: right. why
2: me saying there's an option in no way even slightly guarantees that there may be no, a lot speaking
0: of moving end. parts right
2: yeah. yeah yeah exactly well no Hollywood. it's like i think when, yeah. whenever you
0: find a new author that you really admire and i i, I have and you but like when i first discovered christopher more I, I was and i read everything he does and I'm like, why aren't these movies but there's there's more to do there's more than just write a good book i saw
2: and there are probably many of them are under yeah, option. yeah you should hear john scossie talk about optioning sometime it's kind of hilarious he's a sci-fi author but um prolific who has played pretty much like everything under option but like has never had a movie made because it's just like constantly under. um yeah and my current my option just got my most recent option just got re- re-upped it's called or renewed and uh, it's for animation, my current option, mm-hmm. which I think it would be great fun. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. I think an animated version would be good um, because, as visual and as exciting as my books are, like they are very, you can look at that also and see the expense, like mark up, right? Because right? it's remote location that can't be right. filmed in LA. <laughs> like, it, so it's like Budapest these days or wherever they go. There's it is costuming. a costume drama. Yeah. And it is high CGI because right. it has both supernatural creatures and all these right. steampunk things, right? And it just, like, <laughs> the dollar signs are like, ching, 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 ching. So I've always said from the get-go that I thought animation was actually probably i could a, see it. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Clearer path. So, yeah. I mean, I have my fingers crossed. I think it would be a great animated series, but, you know. no, uh, you never know. I don't. You never know. You never know. <laughs> it's Hollywood.
3: <laughs> so in writing the Parasol Protectorate... Sorry, that's a tough one for me to say um did you have as you're writing solace did you have it in mind like this is like a four or five part story or did you (laughs) take all this one and done on to my next
2: yeah because part one was
0: on a dare right that was on a dare
2: yeah i thought it was a standalone yeah when i wrote the first book i was like i don't know what i'm doing uh let's try this thing um so when you wrote it you had an end
3: like this is the end of It the was story. gonna be
2: done done. Yeah. I mean, I actually had thought maybe it was a prequel. I, I always wanted to write Alexia's daughter's story. That was always in my head. Um and so I wrote the book and then I wrote it what I call bare bones as well, which means uh, it's under length for the genre. So it was maybe 85 to maybe just 90 K when I which, you know, just for references, most adult sci-fi fantasy is like ninety to one twenty. So it was a it was really on the low end and that was specifically because I didn't know who would pick it up. like if a romance publisher picked it up, then I would have to put in some more sexy times and uh and and I was prepared to do that. And if a sci-fi uh, house picked it up, I was prepared to do more advanced world building and and that is what I ended up doing um but also add in some threads because it turns out when I was negotiating the contractor when my agent was that they wanted two books in a, the series and I was like, what is this series? I am, am I writing a series? Okay, I guess I'm writing a series. Wow. Um, Yeah, so that's when I started writing the second one. Uh, and then the second one has a cliffhanger ending. And so they were like, well, now you have to write another uh-huh. one. And I was like, I don't have a contract. Uh-uh. You know what you need to <laughs> do. <laughs> right? um, agent, agent. Not so subtle go, go do agent <laughs> things, please. Yeah, the yeah. Agent.
0: Go, do the, go do the thing like, you're good at. Why are
2: you at? talking to me and not my yeah. agent? <laughs> agent, go do
3: your agent that you're good at. And then I'll do more of the thing that I'm good <laughs> yeah. at and I'll write a third book. Yeah, yeah. So, do you find you spend as much time like world building as you do character building, or is one more important for you than the other? Considering your your background, mm. does it vary? Yeah.
2: Well, well, I again because I think as I come out of social sciences and I love history, I do end up on research rabbit holes a lot. So, well, I'll be like, well, I don't know if yes, there are definitely readers. I mean, I write for nerds, and nerds will cross, will will check you <laughs> a given or, a given uh, anything, right? Oh, yeah, yes, that's they, they call will. You out. Yeah. So if I use the word syringe, I have to go research. Did the syringe exist in 1890s? I know I'm writing steampunk. Like I'm not writing actual historical fiction, but still, can I use that word? Where did it come from? Blah, blah, blah. And suddenly it's been three hours and I know everything about syringes and it's for one sentence um, so that the world building does do that a lot. Um, and I also like the world building a lot again, because I think because of, of my background and general interests, but I would say um, the characters are natural to me like I don't have to work at the character characters come I see my characters fully formed in my head in conversation like they are on a movie screen Um, and so I actually am a very dialogue heavy author you may or may not have noticed this and I tend to still to this day write bare bones so I'll actually tend to write under length to get the plot and the characters out and then I'll go back in and fold in Descriptions of dresses. Lots of the funny stuff happens on the second mm. pass, and a lot of the world. Building. So you plan a room to um,
0: elaborate when you're kind of like on your second run through. That's smart. Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, interesting yeah. approach. I like that.
2: And that's mostly because, like most authors, the rough draft is the hardest part for me. And the point is to get it done. I think if you want to be a, a, a an author, you have right. to. <laughs>
3: mm-hmm.
2: I know. I know that. I don't mean to be harsh, but you must, you must finish a book. <laughs> like, w- you have to get to the yeah, end I would say, in order yeah. to then publish. Songs it. are like that. So, trust
0: me. Songs are like yeah. that. You got to finish them. And for me, I mean, I'm not, this is not, not my thing, but um, for me, having the the rough draft is sort of like the hard part. And then like the tweaking and the play, that's the fun part. You can really just tweak yeah. and tweak and tweak and tweak. And that's what you're doing. You, you underwrite. Yes. So you have room to go in and just play and add more. you.
2: But also you have to stop. Uh, I think a lot of writers writers, and and probably songwriters as well are perfectionists. And we want it to be exactly how we see it in our head or heard it in our ears. And it's never going to be there. It's never going to be as good as you want it to be. And you have to stop, especially if it's your living. (laughs) Um, So that's another thing. I mean, one of the pieces of advice I still give to new writers in particular is um, write the next chapter you can reread only what you wrote the day before. Mm-hmm. Keep writing. Mm-hmm. Write the next nice. bit.
0: Keep moving along. Because um,
2: I know a lot of writers have a habit of just like going back and reworking chapter one and reworking moving and like, forward. Oh, you're not allowed to do that. You just right. yeah. forge right. ahead.
1: <laughs> I
0: had similar advice. Um, and, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yep.
2: I remember yep.
1: my high yeah. school um lit teacher said something like, um, when you're trying to write an essay, you know, just garbage, garbage it out, just get it all out, and then garbage it yes. down. So just
2: Yes. Yeah. My friend Murr calls this, give yourself permission <laughs> yeah. to suck uh, because guess what? You don't have to share it with anybody right. and no one else has to see it and mm-hmm. you can always fix it mm-hmm. later. But the, but the real hard part for most of us is actually just getting it out mm-hmm. and getting it down and anything you can do to trick yourself into doing that puts you ahead of everyone right. else who can. Yeah, yeah. And most people can And can't.
0: the other, it's kind of, a, <laughs> I don't know if it's a or just a comment, but you know, the worst thing you ever wrote is better than the best thing you never mm. wrote.
2: Yeah, you know, exactly. Yeah,
0: spit it out, yeah. get it done. Yeah.
2: yeah, it's funny. I belong to quite a few writers' groups, and like writing, and one of the things we will do is writing retreats, where we all just go to a Airbnb somewhere together mm-hmm. and just write. And we'll do something called proof of write, which is where you read a little bit of what you wrote that day, and it's there's no critique involved. Um, but I think it's kind of some of the most important aspects of this because um, there's it's a mixed group of writers or people like me who have 30 books and multiple New York Times and there are people who are brand new and haven't published anything yet but when we do this proof of right at the end of the day the newer authors hear the older established authors and we all suck like I'm reading my rough draft my rough draft is no better (laughs) or worse than your rough draft it's a rough draft you know it's rough um so yeah I was I I yeah, I encourage also I think most authors need to get used to reading their works out loud and being comfortable speaking in front of people and to do it in a low judgment mm-hmm. zone first is is probably for yeah. you. I've been to songwriter
0: the exact same format. This is what I worked on mm. today. And everybody's in the same the same playing field. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And and also you're just proving you did it. That's all yeah. Your the reason is to just be like, mm-hmm. yes, I did a thing today. I accomplished art um and yeah and there's specifically no critique allowed to keep keep everybody from, i mean i like it because i'm a comedy author and i like people laughing yeah. uh, when i read so i do still take that as critique because i'll be like listening to see if you laugh at the place right. i want right. to do that
0: worked right there so um, i know that's a that, that that's a keeper that that little piece worked. yeah that <laughs>
2: beat worked well exactly um but that's because i you know i've been doing this long enough to to want to play and tease the audiences and, and even if it's my peers <laughs> and it's fun right.
3: and it's fun so in you, you had a book come out earlier this month um divinity yes. 36 and um yes. i i read the the overview of the book and it's a futuristic there's aliens involved so is there yes. was it was that a jump for you to, from like the parasol protectorate and kind of like victorian era story and jumping into something's well, like I said, I haven't read it. It's very futuristic no, in style. Uh,
2: well, I mean, it actually ties to what we were just talking about because it is about music. It's a The sci-fi series is about an alien race that is recruiting humans to sing for them for an entertainment system that is possibly taking over the galaxy. And how do we feel about art, particularly music, as a group-shared uh, concert experience uh, as a weapon? or as a tactic for soft power expansion. Um, and what are the aliens doing? Is it gonna have a beneficial effect on the galaxy or not? Uh, and how does it feel to be a nobody, in this case, a refugee recruited to suddenly become a major celebrity? So um, that's what the story is about. So my my main character is a, a barista on a forgotten moon who makes the very grave mistake of singing along to the entertainment unit in his cafe and it turns out the entertainment unit is listening, and uh, an alien <laughs> shows up. And and the, the the first uh the first book, which is Divinity Thirty Six, which is out right now, is kind of a little bit of like a The Voice style reality TV kind of thing. But they have to put a group together. Um, one of the hallmarks of my style is found family, and affects my main characters like the ultimate lonely has nobody. self-isolated but also isolated kind of grumpy character but he's also like super caring and he really does want to be loved and so this is like putting the band together as well and so so this just juxtapositions of what are the aliens doing to us but also I'm finding my people and my family and my art and the joy in producing something for others to Um, delight in and how that feedback works, but also parasocial relationships and the nature of celebrity and all sorts of stuff. So I'm I'm having great fun with the series. I needed to leave the planet to talk about this (laughs) because uh, I needed to use aliens. It had to be sci-fi. I tend to feel like when I delve into high concept, it really, I really need to go to sci-fi. sci-fi so to answer your question i have two previous sci-fi books which are also set in this universe this is the first series in the universe it's a solid three book Mm -hmm. trilogy and i'm bringing them out in a one two three punch so there's one out every two months so the second one will be out next in uh, august 1st and then the third one that's absolutely after that um and then it'll be done so they're i don't like leaving my readers hanging um
0: i like
3: that
2: so yeah so that's that's what this is a about So it's not my first foray into sci-fi. I also have an urban fantasy sent in um Sausalito here in the Bay Area. Um, again, a tourist mm-hmm. uh, yeah, waterfront yes. town. Um, only in this particular instance, it's full of werewolves and other shapeshifters, and um, it's very queer and it's very sexy. Um, I have a lot of re- because- I have a lot of reading to catch up <laughs> on. <laughs> because the san francisco bay area yeah. like of course uh all of the misfits right. come here yeah. <laughs> <Not Sure>. a-
3: <laughs> and they come down here and they come um, down here yeah. too <laughs> yes yeah
2: there's i'm i'm sure santa cruz will get a visit at some point in this series it, it yeah um so yeah I, i've th- basically three different sandboxes that i like to play in depending on my mood and uh my mood especially during lockdown was i can't write i can't write i can't oh i have to leave the planet i, I need sense. to leave the planet i can't be on this yeah, planet <laughs> <it> makes sense
0: <laughs> i might be sheltered in place but i can leave the planet and go right yeah. about it. exactly yeah, smart Exactly. very smart yeah yeah
2: so yeah so that's the new one um and, and as you can probably tell i'm very i'm very excited about it. it it's just it's one of those um kind of like passion fun projects that just like like oozed out of me really quickly like I wrote all three books kind of back to back. It, it was really fast. And I, I kind of had been a little stymied prior to that. So it sort of opened me back up to creativity and stuff. It's kind of coming out in the world, right? As the world is reopening too. So it feels very yeah, organic. The timing's
3: good. Yeah.
2: Mm.
3: Do, you, do you do um like go on the road and tour like for your books or mm. do you do the like, steampunk conventions i guess or i'm assuming there are yeah. conventions and um like comic-con yeah. type events so are you out like with your fans or are you kind of more reclusive
2: no i'm a i'm a, i would say I'm, I'm one of those weird authors who's uh, i'm not an extrovert but i ex- perform it really really well and i genuinely like meeting my fans and hanging out with them like i i wrote books that are for me and my friendship group and they went out and collected a bunch of people that i was like yeah yeah, those are like I can walk at a, you know, at a Comic-Con or a World-Con or whatever and identify the line that's wow. for me because they will be a specific. I was like, oh, yeah, they're my people, <laughs> you know, they'll be they'll be dressed. If not in steampunk, they'll be in cute little 1950s retro looks or the, their goth looks or whatever. And they will usually be talking hmm. with each other in lines, which, if you know science fiction and fantasy readers, is not normal. <laughs> they'll be chatting away with each other, like making best and new best that. friends and stuff. Um yeah, I have, I have a really fun fan base, um, and and partly that is, like, kind of the happy accident of my original series, which is, like I said, Solace was a, a slow burn thing they weren't sure about, but they did throw some marketing guns behind it. And one of the things they did was like BEA, which is a big book expo thing, but I turned up and I was like, you know, one of my great dreams of being an author, if this is what I am going to do with my life is to show up to a big event, a book event, where I will be wearing a black and white skirt. Don't ask, this was a very specific dream <laughs> of mine. I Black and white skirt needed to be involved where I would be meeting my editor and my agent. Um, and that I got to have that with, with the first book series at, at BEA. It was very exciting. And yes, I wore a very cute fishtail, <laughs> black and white skirt. Um, it was a blast. Uh, but I think part of that was my publishing team at the time and the publicity department of that house kind of vetting the weirdo sci-fi author to see if she presented well. <laughs> you know, like, um, and then when the books were successful, I was one of the authors that they um, sent on book tour um for a long time I I actually have a again I have a blog post about this where I was basically like the thing about being an author on book tour is what it says is usually that they are big enough to get a book tour but not big enough to say no to the book tour uh because it's brutal and I'm a traveler right I'm an archaeologist I love traveling I have a podcast about traveling because I like traveling so much but 10 cities in 10 days there's no, no way to travel That's <laughs> a lot. Um, it's rough book tours are hard and yeah. then i made the switch to ya which mm-hmm. means schools and a- book and tours. Book tours, yeah. it was like even harder um, and not in one place so, long enough to
0: actually yeah. take it in and, and do something yeah. you're just you're working yeah. you're working that entire year.
2: you just move it's literally fly land hotel change event eat at some point if you're very lucky sleep get to the airport, repeat. fly, land, yep.
0: Yep.
2: repeat. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it, it's a, it's brutal. So I did that for my, pretty much my first one, two, three. So the first two series is once with, I started with changelists. So I had four books in the Parasol Protectorate that I did book tours for, four books in the finishing school series that I did bookstores to. And then the first book First and second, but two books in the Custard Protocol series that I did book tours to. And then the second book in that series did not hit the New York Times. And I was basically like, great, can I never do a book tour again? <laughs> I was like, I am I'm tired, done. <laughs> um, yeah, so so I don't do book tours anymore, but I will occasionally arrange something. So when you guys reached out to me, I was up in Seattle because I was up there hanging out with friends. But I also pinged a local um couple of local bookstores and i was like want to have an event <laughs> i'm in town yeah so i will do that." low-key on your terms um, yeah right yeah, yeah yeah i mean i'll arrange it ahead of sure. time and I'll be like i mean i'll be up in seattle in a couple of months you guys want to do an event and then i'll tell all of my my readers and stuff right. like that um and then i also do do conventions so i've done comic con a couple of times and i would do other comic cons i i actually really enjoy comic cons um, and then I'll do smaller ones, science fiction and fantasy conventions, and also steampunk mm-hmm. events. Um, and that, that part, that bit, events, uh, especially when I started to get books in translation, I got to travel around the world doing that. I got That's to terrible. travel to more places kind of as an author than as an archaeologist. Wow. And that was great. Yeah. That was really fun. I don't do it as, as much anyway. I mean, obviously, <laughs> <laughs> I haven't done it in a while. Um, but yeah, I still usually, or at least I used to have like one international event a year and, you know. It's fun. I like it. I like I grew up in cons, so um sci-fi cons. So I kind of I'm I'm accustomed to fandom.
3: And yeah. so when you're doing your book like if you're doing an event at a bookstore in Seattle or wherever and your your yeah. readers and your fans come out are they dressed up? Is like cos the, like often. they're often in costume and representing the yeah. characters in your books?
2: At least somebody there will be in costume. Sometimes it's cosplay, sometimes they just like the steampunk aesthetic and they're wearing that. Sometimes they're goths or goth tangential and that's just how they normally dress (laughs) but yeah they're usually there's usually at least some people dressed up um, unless it's a specific so like this last time I was up in Seattle I did a fundraiser for Clarion West which is a a, a author education outreach kind of um, uh, charity up there and um, we had a steampunk tea and most people dressed up for that so you know I think everybody after after um lockdown was really excited sure. to dress up again. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Halloween
0: was big everybody that wants year. wants to get their Halloween was out. very
2: yeah. big that
3: year. Yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. Everyone want, wants to get their swag <laughs> on and and get right. pretty again. Yep. Yep. Yeah.
3: yeah, yeah. Earlier you said you have your books have been optioned for, mm. you know Hollywood. Do you have? I'm sure you do, but do you have actors or actresses in mind? Like, do you visualize like? or voices oh, for voices yeah. you know for for yeah. some of these characters i'd be curious just to hear like
2: well i had it like i dreamcast early on but like now it's been 15 years since the first book came out so like <laughs> not all of those uh, actors are still in the industry let alone anything else um i tend to pick uh british character actors in particular um because uh, obviously the books are set in the uk Mm -hmm. and i was kind of what little television i had as a kid which wasn't very much tended to be british television my mother's an expat um so and i went to school over there i went to i have dual citizenship so i spent a lot of time over there um so so yeah when i pull i tend to pull kind of obscure british names but i will say that that's the that's the only thing whenever they ask me about things like voice actors for the audiobooks and things like that the only thing my only requirement is that the the person reading the audiobooks be british British, or like have a natural british accent (laughs) i don't think americans can do a british accent i always hear the american twang in there and it really wigs me out so i'm like that's been my only requirement um but actually one of my voice talents the woman who reads um both of my second series is is a voice actress as well and so she, her name is moira quirk so i could see her doing obviously doing any of my characters um so you know she's one that i would love to see in in a voice cast if, if this animation ever gets made um, so would we. To, <laughs> we yeah um yeah, yeah. i mean I'm, I'm into star power but also i really like um uh, you know risk taking with newer newer debut or less lesser known names i think you know That's it's always good and healthy to see new blood on the screen.
3: Finally, a question we ask almost everybody is you know, there's taquerias here in Santa Cruz are like Mm -hmm. prolific. And so we always ask, like, oh, where's your favorite taqueria? Um, But you know, up in the Bay Area, there's no short mission. There's like the mission taqueria. There's oh, no,
2: I could. And I, you better believe I have a taqueria. Oh, let's hear it. Um, Oh, my God. Yeah. If you are ever in Alameda, the island of. Uh, Up here in the East Bay, there's a taqueria called El Caballo Wraps, and it is amazing. And I will tell you (laughs) what you should get. You should get their street tacos with the Chili Verde. It is one of the most perfect bites of food you will ever eat in your life, presuming you don't mind pork. I understand there are those who do not eat pork, but uh, their Chili Verde is a master and i did a language immersion in in mexico so, mm. <laughs> so i feel like and i ate i am a taco. i'm a taco person not a burrito mm-hmm. person um i understand uh burritos i understand burrito people <laughs> i travel with a burrito whenever i leave the barrier i to take a little burrito <laughs> baby with me on the plane um but but it, given the option and in order to test out a new joint it will always be mm. the taco um uh, mm. Uh, corn tortilla taco uh and yeah and this places and they also do an absolutely stellar fish taco there we go now i have requirements for my fish taco (laughs) which includes grilled Mm. not fried i don't want you to excuse that fish in any way the fish must stand on its own and must support the flavor profile um yeah so they do a grilled, it's usually tilapia, which I understand people have baggage with tilapia. I think it's actually a pretty good fish. They do an amazing kind of like, I don't know, oregano, spice rubby sort of thing. And then they've got the little squirt of the chipotle mayo and like fresh salsa. And like, it's all, it's very bright and fresh. I like what I would call what California, specifically Northern California has done to Mexican cuisine. I understand it's not always authentic, uh, but I really like, I like vegetables. I like bright flavors. I like acidity. So I tend to gravitate towards places that kind of have that flavor profile. So I like fusion food as well, but El Caballo Wraps, Alameda, as is required, I think, of a Mexican place. Uh, it looks like nothing. It uh, screams hole in the wall. You are not sure as you walk inside what you are in for. That's on, that's on brand for great Mexico. It really is. Yeah. yeah. The food yeah. is stellar. Yeah. The food is fantastic. Um, truly, truly wonderful. Uh, they also have um, a few sort of Ecuadorian influenced foods, which is huh. always exciting. Um, so you can get like a papusa and um, cardito, which is one of my favorites, which is basically spicy yeah. slaw.
1: All right. Next time I'm at the Alameda Market, yeah. I know where to get the thing.
2: Do it. Yes. Yeah, just tr- it's it's about halfway down the island, and it is it's truly it's truly great. And you will know because you will see. Uh, there's usually somebody standing outside. You will see there are the uh, bunch of pickup trucks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> always a good they sign. They <laughs> have patrons. The right. Right. Yeah. 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 It's it's delicious. Um, you know, um, my partner swears by the um, pollo asado. Uh, the grilled chicken all of the grilled stuff is really good but um al El, El pastor is pretty good too but man it's the chili verde that that it can it can, has literally made me cry <laughs> it's just the perfect bite that just yeah oh, God, i'm so, so hungry
0: I am too. i'm sorry right. i'm gonna temple of taqueria as well i can manage <laughs> something this was amazing this was so fun
1: thank you guys for having me it's been a blast Wow, what a cool lady. Um, that was such an interesting conversation. And we definitely went off tangent a little bit talking more about ceramics. But wow, super interesting. Um, I could talk to her for hours.
0: I'm looking forward to reading more of her books. You know, what really attracted me to her story was steampunk and the, the series of books she did. But uh, I like how archaeology and ceramics, and even her her writing all, I, I said this in the interview, but there was a thread that ran through all of those and it shows. And I, I love food tangents. We, we talk about food on this show and we end up talking about taquerias probably because a lot of us are from South County, but that was great. And we got places to check out up in Alameda so that'll be fun uh coming up next on the area 831 podcast a a a local celebrity we're going to be talking to Jimbo Phillips you might know his father's work from the screaming hand sort of surf motif logo that you see everywhere but Jimbo is an amazing artist as well we'll be talking about that in the next episode of the area 831 podcast so as always thanks for listening subscribe where you find your favorite podcast and we'll talk to you next time